We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, the topic is single-issue voting, part two. Last week I talked about the accusation against conservative Christians that we're single-issue voters when it comes to abortion. And today I'm going to talk about the concern, the same question and objection, as it relates to homosexual marriage and LGBTQ. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening to the show. Well, if you listened last week, you know that I've decided to do a series on Q&A, where I'm just going to respond to some of the questions that I've received over the years from students and faculty, followers, and others, as we've engaged in what I would like to suggest is just good education, good learning, challenging one another. As iron sharpens iron, let one man sharpen another. This is what education is supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be about safe spaces and screaming, you triggered me, or that's a microaggression every time somebody makes you feel uncomfortable or asks you a question that you're not prepared to answer. A good Q&A is probably the best education out there in my view. You don't need to go to college to learn. You can get an education simply by asking questions and shutting your mouth and listening to others as they answer them and encouraging the the same from those who ask questions of you. If they want to engage in a debate, great, welcome it. Welcome the argument. Welcome the conversation. Welcome the debate. But set the rules, and the rules are, there is no such thing as a bad question as long as it's asked politely and with civility. Now, if people get rude and condescending, then there comes a time where you can shake the dust from your feet and just walk away. I mean, even Jesus tells us to do that in the Gospels. But I think you need to really be patient up until that point. Allow people to ask the question, and if they verge on rudeness, then forgive it maybe the first or the second time. And if it persists, then yes, just say, stop. I'm not going to engage in this if you're just going to be a jerk about it. But short of that, I think the Q&A is an excellent format for both people learning a little bit about the topic at hand. So with that as the context, let's take an early break, and when I get back, I'll deal with single-issue voting part two. How do we respond to the issue of sexuality and gay marriage? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. 
the Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance, and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, so welcome back to the rebellion. Um, here's a question I was asked uh, during a previous political season, and it was asked by a person who fancies themselves as an evangelical Christian, uh, a conservative, if you will. This was from a younger person, a college student at the time. Um, here's the question I, I, I've written it down verbatim. It's this. Four years ago, you couldn't have convinced me to vote for a Democrat if you had tried. To me, the issues of homosexuality, etc., were just too big to ignore, and to support a candidate that was pro-gay marriage was inconceivable. However, this person says, I've come to, the, to realize that creating laws against these things is not the solution. We have to operate within the framework that we are in. The solution is not to legislate against it. Furthermore, as Christians, we must do such a great job of loving homosexuals that they see the light of Christ through us and want to make good choices, close quote. Now, I want to emphasize part of the question here before I get into my answer. This is the point here. It says, however, I have come to realize that creating laws against these things is not the solution. The solution is to not legislate against it. Furthermore, as Christians, we want to do such a great job of loving that they see the light of Christ through us and want to make good choices. So the emphasis of this question is we shouldn't be legislating against these things. Legislation is not the solution. Essentially, the assumption here is that you can't legislate morality and that that is not what conservatives and Christians should be doing or arguing for. So I'm going to give you my response. So first, this person has mentioned, or at least implied, several issues here, ranging from legislation, as I've already said, to love. So I'm going to try to touch on a few of these issues with just some of these brief comments. I mean, we could write a whole book on this thing, but my comments in this particular podcast are just going to be skipping across the surface. So first, on the issue of gay marriage. I just have to start by pointing out a major flaw in the logic, or lack thereof, in the pro-gay, pro-LGBTQIA argument or agenda. The bottom line is this. Homosexuality, LGBTQIA, trans, should be a discussion about behavior, pure and simple. I'm going to make that point again. This should be a discussion about behavior, pure and simple. This is not about personal identity and human rights. And if we assume that it's the latter, identity and human rights, then we're going to get everything wrong as we debate this thing. We've got to set the context clearly here. We're talking about a choice, 
I'm not talking about your inclinations, your passions. I'm not talking about what you want to do. I'm talking about what you choose to do. And my assumption here is there are a lot of things that we want to do that we can and should choose not to do. So homosexuality, LGBTQIA, trans, whatever you want to call it, should be a discussion about behavior, and it should not be about personal identity and human rights. And here, here's, I'll, I'll go a little bit deeper with this. I've said for years that those who use genetic predisposition or human psychology or physiology or whatever it is as a pretext for justifying homosexual behavior and its consequent minority status argument are, quite frankly, they're just employing a non-sequitur fallacy to the extreme. Now, what do I mean by that? A non-sequitur is an argument of non-connection. I've told you this before on this show. A non-sequitur is where you conclude, where your conclusions don't logically flow from your premise. You're disconnected. Your non-sequitur is a non-sequence. It doesn't logically flow from your premise. So in layman's terms, a non-sequitur is the fallacy of so what? I'll give you a couple examples. Isn't it natural for you to respond to illogical connections by asking the right question when people say something that's a non sequitur? You say, so what? If my actions are hateful and I cite my family heritage as justification for my hate, your logical response to that non sequitur should be, so what? If I cheat on my wife and I justify it by saying that all males are genetically predisposed to infidelity, your common sense should lead you to ask me, so what? If I'm angry all the time and I say that biologically I'm predisposed to this emotion, you would be well within your rights to respond to me, you know what I'm going to say right now, so what? You see, the issue here is behavior. It's the behavior that's in dispute, not my right to be unfaithful or my right to be angry or my right to be hateful. It's no one's right to claim these proclivities, these instincts, these desires, these passions as their identity. It's not your minority status. It's the behavior that's in dispute. It's not your rights or your identity that are in dispute here. Minority status has never been about one's proclivities and instincts, desires, or consequent actions. It's the opposite. To the contrary of all of this, minority status has always been a matter of who you are, not what you want to do. Do you get my point there? Minority status is about who you are, not what you want to do, or even about what you do do. Minority status has nothing to do with either of those things. Actions. Actions can never be the pretext to one's claim of any human rights. Behavioral choices can never be the justification for anyone's claim to minority status. Otherwise, I mean, you've opened up Pandora's box. Why wouldn't those who practice polygamy, bigamy, interspecies sex, pedophilia, prostitution, and a host of other behaviors be as justified in demanding minority status and human rights as any other subgroup? It never ends. It never ends, and you're seeing that in our society right now. I mean, people are claiming minority status and because of the crazy Pandora's box of identity politics that we've opened up. It's a never-ending fallacy. So with that said, 
I now want to go into the next level of response to this particular question. So I'm going to very briefly address the claim that we have to operate within the framework that we are in. The solution is not to legislate against these things. That was a quote from the question, that we've got to operate within the framework we're in. And the solution to our problems, to the things we don't like, is not to legislate against them. So this is the claim that you can't legislate morality, essentially is what that is. And, And I think one of the simplest ways for me to respond to this is to do what? Ask a good question, rather than just launch into an argument. So here's the question. Should William Wilberforce have responded the same way to the British slave slave trade? Can't legislate morality. It's none of our business. Or how how about Martin Luther King Jr.? Should he have just accepted the given framework of the day and not sought any legislative solutions to the injustices of his time? Really? You really want to go there? How about Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation? I could go on and on and on. But I think I've made my point, and I think it's pretty clear here. The history of social justice is replete with stories of leaders rising up against laws that were unjust and working under the pretext of moral indignation to change such laws through what? Legislative action. And so the point here, I I just, it's shallow, it's thin, the ice cracks on these people when they say you can't legislate morality. All laws... All laws are built upon some assumption of common morality. I don't care what the law is. A speeding limit, a, a, a law against stealing, a law against murder. It all assumes some sort of moral pretext. Otherwise, the entire process of legislation would be meaningless, wouldn't it? So let's go into the next thing. I, I want to comment about what I consider to be an underlying assumption in this particular questioner's argument. They seem to be implying that traditional Christian restrictions on sexual behavior and the, in church, and the church's enforcement of those restrictions are synonymous with being unloving. Because you remember at the end of the question, there was, well, we just got to love people enough to they'll see our love and they'll want to change. So the assumption in the question, in my judgment, is that our desire to legislate against these things that we see harmful to men, women, and children, to society and to culture, is unloving by definition. Well, my first blush reaction to this is, <laughs> aren't, aren't you being just a bit cavalier regarding the principles of physical health, personal responsibility, self-respect, social accountability, that have served as the underpinnings of socially acceptable sexual behavior for literally thousands of years by suggesting that those principles are unloving? I mean, human sexual expression has always been weighed on the scales of morality and virtue. Sexual behavior in all of its manifestations has never been considered to be ethically or legally neutral, even within secular culture. I mean, agnostics, atheists, Christians and Jews, everybody agrees, at least they used to, that the use of another person's body for your own sexual fulfillment is wrong. It's selfish at best and criminal in the extreme, isn't it? The history of civilization is filled, filled with arguments against sexual immorality. Minimizing the moral weight of such traditional sexual standards doesn't seem to be the best way to elevate your argument of 
of love and social justice and civil rights. I don't see how it works that way. I would argue to the contrary. You might actually find that these time-tested values of sexual restraint, as represented in the Judeo-Christian ethic, have actually proven, proven over the course of time to be the framework of unprecedented love and justice for women and children and all others who were in danger of being and were being subjugated to the powers and the, the passions of the powerful and the prominent people. I mean, Nero used people, used women, used children for his own sexual gratification. Was it unloving to try to establish laws that would stop despots like this from doing so? I mean, you could argue that it was the love of Christianity that resulted in laws and legislation and a new culture, a new society, a new form of government that made those things illegal, uh, that, that suggested that it is the ultimate of hate and misogyny. It's the ultimate of disregard for the innocence of children to allow anyone, whether it be Nero or whether it be your neighbor, to use and abuse people sexually for their own, for their own gratification. So uh, these boundaries, these boundaries against exploitation, these boundaries that stop this depravity, these boundaries, I would argue, were grounded in love, not just legalism. And I hope you can understand this. So my point, here's my point in this. If, if you want to lo- argue for love, then isn't the rock of tradition and reason and experience and scripture, revelation, worth considering over and above the shifting sands of political fads and popularity? It, love, love is not the antithesis of law. Love is not the antithesis of some sort of structure, boundaries, discipline. Uh, Discipline and love are not mutually exclusive. They're two sides of the same coin. The Lord disciplines those he loves. That's straight out of the Bible. So you could ask the rhetorical question, if you're not being disciplined, is that evidence of a lack of love rather than evidence of it? So let's go back to the point again. If you want to argue for love, then I would suggest that the rock, the solid rock, the foundation of tradition, of reason, of experience, and of scripture, the quadrilateral, that rock is worth considering over and above the shifting sands of political fads and popularity and personal passions. On one foundation, you can build a house of justice and dignity and respect and freedom. That rock of the quadrilateral, tradition, reason, experience, and scripture, tradition, time-tested truths that have been around forever, that it's wrong to use children sexually. It's wrong for men to use women sexually. It's wrong to use anybody sexually. That the only the only outlet, the only expression of righteous sexuality within any culture is the biblical one. And that breaking that particular standard results in physical dysfunction, disease, STDs, as well as cultural corruption and collapse. So that rock of tradition has proven itself over and over again throughout the ages in Christian communities and in secular communities alike. Reason. I mean, use your brain. You can, you, you can see that those who restrain themselves are often the most loving people rather than those that just release their libido to have its way. Reason, rationality should come into play here. Experience, 
Well, you can see from experience how it's working for us, right? Ignoring these rules results in a culture that's totally, totally without cohesion in any cult. And again, I say that not as reference to a false religion, but as the cultivated common rows, parallel understandings that a society has to have to function civilly. Without those cultivated common rows, without that cult, that common understanding, that cohesion, that glue that holds us together, we're totally lost. And the rows are not parallel and organized any longer in culture. It's chaos. They're crisscross, colliding against one another to our own devastation. And the crop that grows is weeds. It's not anything that can actually be good, good for the human being. So tradition, reason, experience, and then scripture. Scripture is replete. It's very clear in the Bible. And the Bible has been tested by time. It has been uh, evaluated by reason. It has been viewed through the lens of experience for 4,000 years or more, and it's proven itself true over and over again. It is the ultimate measuring rod outside of those things being measured, and it allows us to do the measuring as we enter into these times of Q&A, debate, conversation, and argument. So, like I said, on one foundation, you can build a house of justice and dignity and mutual respect and human freedom. On the other foundation, well, or lack thereof. On the sand, you're just going to find a crumbling shack of jealousy and depravity and fear and the appalling bondage that comes from the consequences, the consequences of personal as well as corporate sin. So back to the question. I'm going to go back and read it one more time. And here it is. Four years ago, this person said, you couldn't have convinced me to vote for a Democrat if you had tried. To me, the issues of homosexuality, etc., were just too big to ignore. And to support a candidate that was pro-gay marriage, oh, that, was un- that was inconceivable. However, says this questioner, I've come to realize that creating laws against these things is not the solution. We have to operate within the framework that we are in. The solution is not to legislate against these things. Furthermore, as Christians, we just need to do such a great job of loving homosexuals and everybody else that they see the light of Christ through us and make good choices. Well, there's a purity of this and there's an innocence in this question that I don't want to mock, but this is extremely naive. It's extremely naive. I've come to the conclusion that creating laws against evil is not the solution? Really? (laughs) Really? Legislation isn't the solution? Laws don't do any good? Oh, really? In other words, it shouldn't have been illegal for Hitler to do what he did. It shouldn't be illegal for Bull Connor to be a racist in the South. It shouldn't be illegal to, to force blacks to use separate elevators and separate water fountains and They can't even enter a hotel by the same door. That should not be illegal. We should just live within the framework that we're in and operate within those frameworks and and not try to legislate against these things. To quote this questioner, the solution is not to legislate against this stuff. As Christians, we just need to be so loving that others will see the light of Christ and make good choices. Well, uh, we should be loving, but love is not a passive, fuzzy group hug. That is the problem here. This person is 
not defining love properly. I've said before, tolerance is an inferior virtue. Tolerance is not what we should be doing. Tolerance is not loving. Tolerance says, I could care less about you. I'll just tolerate you. I don't care what you do. Do what you want. And if you die or get a disease or if you suffer from it, I love you enough to just be quiet and let you careen over the cliff. That is not love. Tolerance is an inferior virtue. Tolerance says, I could care less about you. Do what you want. Christian charity Love, real love, is a superior virtue. Love cares enough to step in somebody's way and say, stop it, you will not do that. You're harming other people and you're harming yourself. And because I love you and I love them, I will not permit it any longer. Tolerance is nothing but apathy. Love is the exact opposite. It's the antithesis. It isn't apathetic. It isn't indifference. Love is very concerned. Love sacrifices comfort for the good of others. It doesn't just go along to get along because you want to be liked and you want to be their friend. That's why a parent understands the difference between being a mom and a dad and your kid's best friend. I'm not interested in being my son's best friend. I'm interested in being his dad, and there's a huge difference here. So, in summary... Number one, it's a non sequitur to suggest that somehow your personal identity is the same as your personal inclinations. Homosexuality should be a discussion about behavior. LGBTQIA is about behavior. Trans is about behavior. It's not about personal identity and human rights. And if you suggest otherwise you've done nothing but imbibe the Kool-Aid and you've lost your mind because you're not thinking clearly. This is a non sequitur to the extreme. Just because a person wants to do something doesn't mean that's who they are. If I justify my anger by saying I'm biologically predisposed to be angry, you should say, so what? You should still control yourself and not express it illegally or immorally. If, 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 Men start justifying their infidelity on their wives because they're biologically predisposed to be unfaithful. I would hope that everybody listening to me right now would say, that's insane, that's stupid, that's misogyny to the extreme. It doesn't matter whether men are biologically predisposed to be polymorphous. That doesn't matter. Any sane society recognizes that men should control themselves and be faithful within the bonds of marriage so that they can raise healthy families. And I would think even secularists would agree with that. And again, when you go down this path of inclinations equals identity and that, my, that minority status is nothing but the sum total of but what you want to do, then you've opened up Pandora's box of, to anything. Polygamy, bigamy, interspecies sex, pedophilia, prostitution, anything. And that's what you're seeing in the, this rapid, uh, uh, uncontrolled collapse of our culture right now. So that's one point. The other point is stop saying you can't legislate against this stuff and that it's legalistic to do so. Because that would clearly mean that Wilberforce was wrong and fighting against the slave trade because he was trying to create laws against it and that Martin Luther King Jr. was wrong 
in fighting for civil rights because he was trying to create laws, legislation that were just for all people, regardless of the color of their skin. It would mean that Lincoln was wrong in authoring the Emancipation Proclamation and that the fight for liberation that's represented in the Civil War was all just a ridiculous exercise because it was predicated on the assumption that we needed laws that protected everybody equally across the United States that were grounded in the constitutional ideals of our country. This argument that you can't legislate against morality is empty. All legislation assumes common morality. I'll say it again. All legislation assumes common morality. Otherwise, the entire process of legislation would be meaningless and all laws would be nothing but arbitrary. And I don't think anybody believes that. And then this issue of restricting sexual behavior as being somehow synonymous with being unloving. It's the exact opposite. Loving people stand in the way of those who are hurting themselves through bad behavior, and they tell them to stop. Just tolerating it, affirming it, being apathetic and indifferent toward bad behavior is not love. It's actually quite hateful. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.